Welcome, everybody, to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 274, Recap on Twitter Spaces. Today, we're going to be discussing the replacement cycling vulnerability in Lightning, which we alluded to last week, uh, including future and current mitigations. We're going to talk about a bug related to uh, Sum UTXO and some covenants research by Rusty Russell, a proposed BIP for the opcat opcode, and some interesting stack exchange Q&A. And finally, Bitcoin Core 26.0 release candidate one. I'm Mike Schmidt. I'm a contributor at Optech and executive director at Brink, funding open source Bitcoin developers. Joined by my co-host, Merch. Hi, I'm Merch. I work on Bitcoin stuff at Chaincode Labs. And T-Bast. Hi, I'm T-Bast. I work on Eclair and the Lighting Specification at Async. Fabian. Hey, I'm Fabian. Uh, I'm sponsored by Brink, and I primarily work on Bitcoin Core. And Ethan, although Ethan plus Ethan. one. Um, I'm a co-founder of uh, Fashion Zero. Um, I've done a bunch of work on um, the peer-to-peer network and um, uh, atomic swaps. And uh, does your co-contributor want to introduce themselves as well? Hey guys, Armin here. Uh, I'm joining as a listener, but I'll probably speak on Ethan's mic. Um, I'm working on sidechains at Botanics Labs. I've been working on multi-sigs for better part of a decade now. Um, yeah, thanks for having me today. Well, thanks all our special guests for joining. We're going to go through the newsletter sequentially here, um, starting off with three news items that are somewhat related. It is the replacement cycling vulnerability that came out last week against HTLCs. We had a brief write-up on this in the last newsletter, um, but didn't have a chance to get into it too deep because it was announced um, late in the publication cycle last week. Um, But Dave, the primary author of the newsletter and these news sections, really dug into the the details in this week's write-up, breaking the news into three separate sections. First one is an overview of what is this vulnerability The second section is what updates have been made to Lightning implementation so far. And the third section is what ideas are there for additional mitigations. Luckily, we have T-Bast who was able to join us this week to help unpack the topic. T-Bast, maybe let's start with what is the vulnerability itself? Maybe under what conditions does this vulnerability apply and how is the attack executed? Sure. So first of all, for anyone who haven't read it yet, the summary by Dave on the Optech newsletter is really, really great. It really explains all the details and subtleties with some uh, some examples. So it's really, it's really good to read at your own pace if you want to fully understand this. So the the way it works, and it is highlighted uh, a lot in the in the summary is that this is an attack on routing nodes. If you are just a wallet and then node that only sends payments or receive them, you are not affected at all. It's uh, when routing nodes forward an HCLC and the HCLC expires, they have to close the channel and publish uh, an HCLC timeout transaction to be able to get the HCLC back. And that happens when you, let's say you have, uh, you are receiving an HLC on what we we will call the upstream channel, and then you are forwarding it on what we call the downstream channel. So the HLC expires first on the downstream channel so that you have time to be able to get your funds back on chain for the downstream downstream channel, and then fail back the HTLC on the upstream channel without having to close that channel. And the, the attack 
the goal of this attack is to make sure that you are not able to get your HTLC timeout transaction for the downstream channel confirmed in time. So you have to make a decision for the upstream channel before you're able to get the funds back. So you, you will end up uh, failing the HTLC upstream, which means you have not received the money, but then the attacker on the downstream channel is going to reveal the pre-image, but later so that you send money downstream, but you have not received matching money upstream. So that's how they make you lose money. And this is supposed to be impossible because the only two ways to spend the HTLC output on the downstream channels are either by revealing the pre-image for that payment, which would let you claim the funds that come on the upstream channel, or you getting the funds back through the HTLC timeout transaction. And there are no other ways to spend the script for that HTLC output. But the thing that Antoine uh, found and is a nice and mempool trick is that you, as the honest node, publish your HTLC timeout. So you expect it to confirm. But then the attacker is going to publish their HTLC success transaction, the one that reveals the pre-image. This will replace your HTLC timeout in the mempool. But if that transaction gets to your own mempool or gets confirmed, then you, you learn the pre-image so you are able to get paid upstream. So what the attacker does to prevent that is that they can replace that HTLC success transaction by invalidating one of its parent. So what they do is replace one of the parent transaction so that the HTLC success doesn't have the output it was spending anymore. And if they do that very quickly after publishing the HTLC success transaction, then it is likely that no miners will get the HTLC success transaction mined, and you may not receive it in your mempool either. So you don't have an opportunity to get the pre-image. But that depends on a lot. To, to be able to successfully create that attack, you have to have very good overall knowledge of a peer-to-peer -peer ne network. You have to be able to inject transactions at the right time in the right places. You also have to be able to eclipse the node of the victim so that they don't see your transaction that contains the pre-image. And uh, the, this is also an active attack where the attacker has to actually replace transactions with a higher and higher fee rate. So some of those transactions will get confirmed, which makes the attacker pay some on-chain fees. So every block that the attacker is trying to sustain the attack, he has to pay for it. So all of those reasons, for all of those reasons, this is, we should not dismiss this attack because someone who has a really, a very well-motivated and well-funded attacker who could have potentially very precise control of a peer-to-peer -peer network would maybe be able to carry out that attack. But in practice, it is really, really hard, hard to carry out. And there are a lot of mitigations in place to make sure that even if you're able to carry it out, you will not gain a lot of money. So I don't know how much we want to go into the details of those mitigations, but at least that's the high level view of the attack. But it's really easier to understand if you read slowly the mailing list with, uh, with details of the transaction setup. So don't hesitate to do that. Thanks for that overview, T-Best. Um, I, I think it would maybe help clarify the issue to also get into some of the deployed mitigations that we got into in the newsletter that, that certain implementations have put into place. Um, maybe you, you want to talk through those a bit? Yeah, sure. So first of all, there are three, I think, three main mitigations. The first one is playing on the timeout, the, the number of blocks you have to get that transaction confirmed, because the, 
The more blocks you have to get this transaction confirmed, the more the attacker has to pay fees to evict your transaction and get another transaction confirmed instead. And also the more blocks, uh, the more time you have basically to get your HTLC timeout transaction confirmed, the more likely it is that you will find one miner that the attacker didn't correctly reach that will eventually mine either your transaction or the HTLC success transaction. So the first mitigation is to make sure that you have a large enough timeout. Then another mitigation is to make sure that you republish your HLC timeout transaction regularly so that the attacker has to continually do, do this cycling on, of evicting your HLC timeout transaction with their HLC success transaction, then evicting again their HLC success transaction by making one of the parents invalid. So the, the, more, the more frequently you do that, the harder it is for the attacker to, to carry out this attack. Then another mitigation is to watch your mempool so that because the attacker to be able to replace your transaction first has to insert the HTLC success transaction that has the pre-image and then replace it. But if you're able to see that transaction, you are able to extract the pre-image and then the attack doesn't work anymore. So if you're watching your own mempool and you are able to see that transaction, then you are completely protected from that uh, kind of attack as soon as the transaction at least reaches your mempool. You're not being fully eclipsed by the attacker. Then uh, another mitigation, uh, what else did we do? Uh, longer expiry deltas, rebroadcast frequently, and then uh, more aggressively raising the fees of your HTLC timeout transaction to make sure that the attacker also has to more aggressively pay fees to be able to carry out the attack. So that in the end, it ends up like a scorch earth strategy where you are ready to pay up to the HTLC amount in fees. So the attacker will end up paying even more than that without being able to steal any money. But the, the best, th those are mitigations, but they don't fully fully fix the, the attack. Potentially, in theory, uh, an attacker with perfect uh, control over the peer-to-peer -peer network and where transactions are injected and at what rate would still be able to exploit that and, uh, and attack you. But, and th that's why the, the real, ide the ideal fix would be a change at the, at the Bitcoin D level, well, when the miners create their block template, the thing is that there's a, a big inefficiency here for them because they first receive an HLC timeout transaction that potentially pays a large fee because you are getting really close to the timeout and you really have to get that transaction confirmed. Then this one is evicted by an HLC success transaction. Then the HTLC success transaction is evicted again because it loses one of its parents. But when that happens, the HTLC timeout transaction can be reintroduced into the mempool. So the, the miners would potentially be able to, to figure out that, oh, I previously evicted a transaction, but now I can actually put it back in my mempool and it's a high fee paying transaction. So I should put it in my block template and then the attack would disappear entirely. But this is, this potentially has other subtleties when you start getting into modifying the block template code or storing more transactions uh, that have been evicted from the, from the mempool. You want to make sure that you are not opening yourself to those attacks. So this is not as simple as that, but at least conceptually, there's a big opportunity loss for the miners. And that's why ideally, I would love to see it being fixed at that level, but that's probably really hard. Go ahead, Merch. I'm curious, uh, someone that I discussed this attack with in the last week suggested, why doesn't the, um, I think you called it an HTLC success transaction on chain uh, signal finality, why does it signal RBF 
when the transaction is pre-signed and cannot be changed by the author. Would that, assuming that mempool full RBF is not fully adopted by the network, mitigate the replacement cycle? Um, first of all, yeah, I'd say we want to assume that full RBF is on. Otherwise, it could still be game. Yeah, it would be harder to pull out. I think there's a, if I remember correctly, there is a reason why we have to put that in sequence, but I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember why. I, I think there's a reason why the HLC success transaction has to signal RBF, but I can't remember why. I would have to look at the spec again. So just to clarify for listeners, we see notices of vulnerabilities in software. And I think the the common resolution to a lot of that is, oh, you know, just put in a quick code fix and, and upgrade and, and all is good. Um, and in this case, the uh, there there isn't some such fix that just magically puts this away. You're trying to raise the the mitigations here are raising the cost for the attacker to do this, um, and and not necessarily fixing it straight away. Go ahead, do your best. Yeah, one one first good reason to make uh, VHLC success uh, RBFable is that otherwise you are creating another attack vector in the opposite direction. When, for example, you are, um, if you receive an HTLC, you want to fulfill it because you have a pre-image, but then the other node closes the channel. You need to make sure that you are able to get the HTLC success transaction mined before the timeout of the HTLC is reached, because otherwise the other node would start, would be able to publish their HTLC timeout transaction and they would get back the funds. And this would be exactly the opposite as this attack, as this attack where you would have paid the money upstream and you are fighting to claim it back uh, you would have paid the money downstream, sorry, and you have learned the pre-image, and you are fighting to get the money back on the upstream channel. So if you are not able to RBF your HTLC success transaction, potentially it's just not going to confirm before the HTLC timeout can be published, and then you would be completely screwed. So you, you, we really have to make sure that the HTLC success transaction can be RBF'd. But I thought that... Uh... Wasn't part of why the um, replacement cycling works that the defender cannot actually change anything about the HTLC success transaction and it is completely predetermined? So how would no, they the no, no, because since we introduced anchor outputs, the HTLC transactions are using, uh, they have one output that comes from the commitment transaction and uh, we're using Cgash single, Cgash anyone can pay on that one, and you have to bring your own funds in additional inputs to set the fees of the HTLC success transaction, because by default it pays zero fees. So you really have to bring fees, and you and then you we, let, we also let you change those fees by updating that transaction, because otherwise you would have to guess right from the very beginning what the fee rate is for the of the whole duration of the CLTV expiry delta, which which would be dangerous. I see. T-Best, I think we got into some of the proposed additional mitigations here. You, you talked about miners retrying past transactions. You also mentioned the scorched earth, and it sounded like you mentioned it in the case of that already being implemented. Are any of the lightning implementations doing that sort of uh, increased fee mitigation that you talked about? 
Yeah, I think we've all been doing that, uh, at least on the on the Eclair side, since we introduced uh, Anchor Outputs, I think almost two years ago. That was the strategy we had in our uh, HCLC transaction logic that we would keep raising the fee until we get closer and closer to the, ta- to the end of the timeout. So that would eventually reach the scorch-off scenario where you spend the whole HCLC amount in fees. So the, this was already here and had been already here for a while. And I think the other implementations do the same. And um, in the other, yeah, and we also change the fee regularly. And I'm looking at the, at the newsletter right now to see the, other, uh, the list of the other proposed improvement. So the, the next one was to have pre-signed fee bumps by uh, Peter Todd. And it's interesting because this is actually a proposal I made on the spec uh, I think a year ago or something like that, where we would pay, we would pre-sign transactions at various fee rates to make sure that even if the, my, my goal was not exactly to protect against that attack, but rather that if the other node goes offline, you have potentially a transaction at a fee rate that you, that matches the current fee rate to be able to be more fee efficient. But the issue with that is that either it takes a lot of bandwidth or you're losing a lot of granularity in the fee rate you are paying, especially once you get into higher fee rates, because what you, you cannot do, uh, you cannot sign for every increment of one sat per byte because that wouldn't scale. We wouldn't want to sign 250 different versions of each transaction, for example, especially since uh, you have to resign every HCLC transaction while they are pending. So you have what uh, I think that what Peter Todd proposed is that we do powers of twos, but if we do powers of twos, for example, we have one transaction at 128 sat per byte and another one at 256 sat per byte. If really the current fee rate is 140 sat per byte, you would have to use the one at 256 sat per byte, which is already quite a lot more than what you what you could do. So you are wasting a lot of fees and being really fee inefficient. So while it would work-ish, it would be really inefficient, uh, fee inefficient, in my in my opinion, to do it that way. I think you could certainly find a different curve where you maybe scale double or even four times in the earlier steps, but then later level off and use a smaller factor, um, especially in the granularity of, I mean, going from 500 to 1,000, for example, makes absolutely no sense. 128 to 256 definitely hurts already. Um, but yeah, I understand that also a big problem would be that you just uh, have to keep track of a lot more state and have more decisions to make when you broadcast what and so forth. Uh, isn't that the main issue with this approach? Yeah, definitely. That's definitely another issue. And uh, since we've already implemented uh, something that looks partially like that in Eclair for Phoenix, we we do have to track more state and store more, store more signatures. So it is not a very satisfactory solution. So, yeah, I agree that uh, I'm not really satisfied with, uh, with that idea to fix, the, to fix this issue. I think we can do better. One uh, final discussed potential mitigation here was this op expire opcode, which would make a transaction invalid for inclusion after a certain block height, uh, assuming that the, that transaction script had an op expire in it. Um, seems fairly invasive, but TBAS, do you have a thought on that? Yeah, I, I find this one really interesting because uh, it would at least really let us exp- 
express exactly what we want from our scripts. We want the HTLC success to be uh, allowed before a certain time, and then we want the HTLC timeout to be the only way to spend that. And what, what would be really nice with that is that we wouldn't have to overpay the HTLC timeout. We wouldn't have to be in a rush to be able to get those funds back. So conceptually, uh, it really looks like the kind of thing we'd want. But I have no idea what all the second order effects would be of having such a, such an opcode in Bitcoin. So that that's the part where I just don't know. I, I know that it will, I, I would like it for this specific use case, but I don't know if there are other reasons of uh, negative things it could do and other reasons to and reasons to dismiss it because yeah, maybe reorgs, maybe yeah, expiring transactions is something that we we haven't done. So. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think the proposal to have something that allows transactions to expire at a certain block height has come up quite a few times. And there is a huge issue with that around reorgs. If you, for example, let's say Alice creates a transaction that can only be included in the next block, but it has an enormous value and pays an enormous fee. Um, it creates first an incentive for other miners to attack the previous block in order to collect that fee. Second, it uh, creates the problem that if people start building other transactions on top of that unconfirmed transaction trees, you only have to block that one parent transaction to obsolete the entire downstream um, of descendant transactions. So one thing is that people could have additional incentive to censor a transaction that is uh, expiring after the next block. But the other one is that people could be encouraged to attack the previous block in order to mine a competing block that does not include a transaction in order, in order to um, invalidate a whole tree of descendant transactions. This could basically make a Finney attack way more profitable because you'd only have to reorg one block in order to potentially um, gain a multiple of the paid transaction back because um, like multiple downstream payments could be invalidated that way. So I think philosophically we have had a few discussions about this in the past and I think we will it would be very hard to get um, support for for this proposal T-Vast, other than encouraging folks who run a lightning node to update to the latest versions to make sure these mitigations are included uh, any parting words for the audience about your outlook on lightning and this particular attack moving forward yeah, sure. So I think uh, I think professional nodes should not be really worried about this attack because professional nodes have a good enough uh, good enough setup, stable nodes, and uh, mostly are making sure that it is not easy to eclipse attack their Bitcoin node. That it's not easy to figure out which bit which node is their Bitcoin node associated to their Lightning node. But that, that could be more of an issue for uh, non-professional users who run, for example, on a Raspberry Pi, where by default, Bitcoin D and the Lightning node run exactly on the same uh, hardware and uh, have the same IP address, which makes it really easy to see uh, which Bitcoin node you have. But even, even then, 
Bitcoin D still has already quite a few mitigations against Eclipse attacks. So you're probably fine even in that case, but it would still be a good idea to make sure that your Bitcoin D node doesn't share the same IP address as your Lightning node. I think that's the main thing that you can easily change and would already provide good enough protection because if the attacker is not able to Eclipse attack your node and you are, for example, watching the, your local mempool, it is very likely that you will receive the HTLC success transaction and will be able to extract the pre-image so that the attack doesn't work. Great point. Sebas, thanks for joining us and, and walking us through these news items. Um, you're welcome to stay on, or if you have other things to do, you can drop as well. I'll stay, of course. Excellent. Next item from the newsletter in the news section is titled Bitcoin UTXO Set Summary Hash Replacement. And this was an item posted to the Bitcoin Dev mailing list by Fabian. So I will let him sort of take the, the reins here. Maybe Fabian to start. What is the hash of the current UTXO set and why does anyone need it? Yeah, sure. Um, so the hash um, is basically, yeah, I'm, you know, the UTXO set is the um, coins that are um, possible to spend uh, at any point in time. And so that means um, there is a um, UTXO set for every block height. Um, and there's a possibility to hash it, of course. So you have to first decide how you actually take the information from these coins um, and, and serialize it. So that's that's why also the name of the hash is serialized hash. And so after you've serialized it, then, then you hash it. Um, and we actually have two different algorithms right now to um, to hash them, and the first one that is pretty old um, uses simply uh, SHA-256, um, and then we also have the mu hash algorithm um, to do that. Um, and so the reason why, um, it actually this only got interested now and got, got very interesting now with Assume TXO because before um, I think there wasn't really a good use case for it. Like there were um, ideas being thrown around for using this hash, but um, to my knowledge, there wasn't really a protocol that were using it um, on top of Bitcoin, um, at least nothing that, that really caught on or, or got serious interest. Um, and I think it's first interesting to um, kind of uh, re repeat what, like, how Assumitex O really works under the hood um, when you when you start using it, um, to understand how how it's relevant um, in that context. So when you start your node, um, like the first time you you run a node ever, um, and you want to use the cool new feature Assumitex O, um, so you have the um, assume uh, the the, the UTX XO set from from somewhere um, like that's not really relevant where, where you get it from there are ideas for that in the future as well so you have it and so you you start your node and then you run the first RPC um, that is called uh, low load TX outset I think or could be also load UTX outset I think TX outset um, and you provide the file that you have that that has the UTX outset and so what is happening then in the background and this is going to take some time is that this file is being read by the Bitcoin core node um, and it just takes piece by piece the coins out of this 
um, file and reads them, um, puts them in its uh, local UTXO set. Um, and then at the end, it hashes, uh, it runs this hashing algorithm on the UTXO set. Um, and then when everything is done, um, and it receives this hash, then it checks this hash against um, the chain parameters. So um, if you are um, on testnet or signet, um, this is already possible right now, um, there will be um, a hash that is part of the list where it's permitted to use, um, to load the UTXO set that um, uh, results in this hash. Um, and so that is the, the big security mechanism that we have for um, assume UTXO is that um, in the code there are these hashes hard coded and um, they um, like being checking, checking against these hashes in the chain params then um, lets you realize if you have a UTXO set that is possibly malicious, um, that is either not the right height that you are expecting, or um, yeah, um, potentially somebody has been giving this to you, but to, to trick you to um, accept coins that you shouldn't be accepting that that are um, actually not there, for example. Um, yeah, so I would go into my um, discoveries first, unless there are any questions about this for now. No, go ahead. That was great. Okay. So um, last week, um, I was uh, doing some follow-ups to ZoomTXO that was that was um, just merged. And um, as part of that, I also wrote some tests. Um, and the test that I was writing, particularly in this case, is that I was basically uh, malleating the... Um, uh, this this uh, UTXO set file. So um, my expectation was that um, like I know what is being written in the file and I know what is being read from the file. So if I before I provide the file to the node, um, I can um, uh, change some some content of it. Um, then uh, it's going to throw some errors. And then when I when I change something else, it's possibly going to throw the same error, or it could also be throwing a different error. Um, and so um, when when this when this when this content is written, um, there are some basic checks in the beginning, and then that that gives a certain error when the basically the reading of the content is doesn't make any sense. But then also when you do some specific changes um, uh, that are that are let's say more correct or not not as not as uh, stupid, then um, the hash then the um, then the process is going to fail much later, and it's going to fail at the end when we're actually doing the hashing of the um, of all the UTXOs that were loaded, um, and then it's going to check against the uh, the chain params, and at that point it should fail. Um, and so that was my goal with um, the particular test to make an, a change in the file um, and then see it only fail at the end when the it, the, the hash didn't match the chain params. Um, and so then when I implemented this, uh, I actually didn't see the test fail. Um, and so that was very surprising to me. And I actually first thought that I was doing something wrong, like very, very classic thing to do because I, I actually know the session code quite well because I refactored it at some point. Um, and so I thought like the, the, the hashing code cannot be wrong because I know we have tests that covers it. Um, and so I actually thought I had some misunderstanding of the deserialization of uh, that code that, that there was some like there was some possibility to to um, change the, the the file there and it was actually still resulting in the same UTXO set like then it in itself would also have been a 
problem, but not as big as a problem as we then had. Um, and so I, I posted this observation because I was going to bed basically. Um, and then the next morning, um, Sebastian uh, had uh, already found like the issue, and the, the issue was actually in the hashing code. So actually, we were loading a different UTXO set. Um, that like the Maliati UTXO set, it actually resulted in a different UTXO set, but the different UTXO set yielded the same hash because there was a bug in this um, hashing code. And this particular bug was that basically just some parentheses were removed from a specific line. Um, and what that specific line does, it basically compactly saves the um, height uh, at which this this coin um, uh, was created, and then also whether this coin is a Coinbase. So um, it, it it has some logic uh, where it basically saves these these two kinds of information in one single number. Um, and so since there's a there's a several things going on in the same line, um, there you you need to have some parentheses in order to make the to do the um, operations in the right order, um, and then the. Um, yeah, these, these parentheses were removed at some point, um, and that resulted actually in different hashes. But uh, then this this never was discovered because this change apparently was before we actually had coverage of this. So um, the, the test that I wrote for this hashing algorithm, uh, I added in, I think, 2020, um, and this change was being made in 2018. So actually this was always wrong and I like just hadn't covered this particular case in my tests um, and so um, yeah the, the, the hash has been wrong for a very long time um, but this also underlines a bit that this has never been really used um, for anything critical previous to a Sumitix O probably um, because then it might have been discovered. Thanks for um, walking through the, the, the journey that you got to find this particular bug because that was actually one of my questions. And so I think outlining how you got there um, is an informative to the audience and, and thanks for discovering this and, and hopefully we can get a fix in there. Um, you called out to the mailing list seeking feedback from users of that potential field that, that can be malleated. Did, did anybody reach out and what, you know, were there any types classes of users that could be affected by this? Other than obviously, you know the the UT uh, the assume UTXO use case. Um, no, um, nobody reached out. Um, thankfully, actually, like otherwise, um, uh, it could have been a mess. Uh, but in this case, yeah, we we actually already have the fix in. Um, it was merged uh, two days ago. Um, so yeah, maybe I can I can speak about that. Um, but yeah, like so nobody has reached out, and as I said, like I think nobody is really using this. That was also my um, my feeling before. Um, but if somebody reaches out, then we can still take action um, and include the, the the old hash again. Um, but uh, yeah, since what I described, this is actually like the hash is not correct. And so we rather would not like, um, because yeah, it's in, in, in certain scenarios, like in, in Sumitix O, it's actually not like safe to use it um, anymore. Um, 
And so, yeah, that may maybe I should talk about like what we've done. So like there was actually a, a way to fix it very minimally, but just adding the parentheses back basically. Um, but uh, there was also some other issues with it discovered. Um, Niklas uh, wrote a fuzzer very quickly um, and discovered some further potential issues with it. Um, and so what in the end, what we did is we actually changed the whole serialization format um, but it was not anything new that we introduced. Instead, instead we use the same serialization now that is also used for MuHash. Um, and so we also incremented the version of this um, hash serialized. So the, the um, so we basically now use the same serialization for both the shard room 56 hash, which is now called hash serialized three, um, as well as for the for the MuHash. Um, yeah, and so it's uh, recommended if you have any product, if you are looking at this hash for any kind of use case, then um, you will have to switch to this um, new version 3. Um, it's very simple, like in the place where before hash series 2 was 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 returned by getTXOutsetInfo, um, now it's going to be hash series 3. Um, I have actually a, a, a commit uh, that is ready to go where we could do some um, compatibility where um, we could have the like the, the normal workflow with the deprecated um, uh, RPC um, and that would then um, show the hash serialized to the old one as well um, but as long as nobody reaches out and says they need this for some reason because they cannot upgrade to, to the new hash um, quickly um, yeah we, we didn't really see uh, a reason to, to include that Fabian, thanks for walking us through that. You're welcome to stay on for the rest of the podcast, or if you have other things to do, you can drop. Oh, Merch has a question. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, so we were going to talk about uh, Bitcoin Core 26.0 RC1, and one of the big headliner items there, of course, is also Assume UTXO. So I was... Um, I, I might have missed it in the beginning of, of your introduction, but... Um, if you have to drop, I would like to ask you what the exact feature coverage of what shipping in 26 is going to be. But if you're going to stay on, we can talk about it later. Uh, I will stay on. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by feature coverage. Um... So I know that the, the snapshot loading is in, but are we actually shipping a snapshot in 26 now? And I think that there is no mechanism yet with how the data for the snapshot hash is being distributed. So that that was going to be my line of questioning. I, so um, yeah, the distribution stuff is unsolved. So it's um, out of band that you would need to get a hold of the file um, that includes the UTXO set. Um, yeah, like examples where this can work for that I always say is like if you if you get a um, if you get like a node like a Raspberry Blitz or an Umbra or so, like it could be preloaded. Um, but but this is unsolved, and there were just some ideas throwing around um, about it lately. Um, and then in terms of uh, being able to use it, um, so this is actually something that I think we also need to communicate uh, well in the. Um, in the release notes is that the chain parameters are not there yet for mainnet. Uh, we actually, yeah, just just left them out um, because I guess there was a feeling that maybe, for example, test coverage is not as good as it could be. Um, and so there is going to be only chain params 
for SIGNET and uh, for testnet uh, included in the release. So when you run the actual 26 release um, and you don't want to um, malleate the chain params yourself, um, then you will only be able to use it in testnet and SIGNET. Um, yeah. Right. And I just wanted to add one more thing um, that I think was really cool to see for me, like this effort, like I'm, I'm here speaking about it now, but um, yeah, as I said, like this was actually discovered and the fix was merged within uh, less than a week. Um, and that was particularly because um, I was trying to do the changes quickly, but then also uh, there were several people that are responding quickly and doing review and, and giving feedback. Um, and so, yeah, this this was really great that there were three, four or five people um, that were um, really taking action quickly also and helped getting this in um, as soon as possible. Excellent. Nice work, Fabian. Cool. Thanks. Next item from the news section is titled Research into Generic Covenants with Minimal Script Language Changes. And unfortunately, the author of this research and the post to the Bitcoin Dev mailing list, Rusty Russell, wasn't able to join us. So we will summarize as best we can the work that he's been doing. Rusty posted to the mailing list with a link to his blog where he explores ways of achieving covenant functionality using some simple new opcodes. He calls his preferred approach to covenants fully complete covenants, which involves pushing some specified field or more than one field of a transaction onto the stack for evaluation, which is in contrast to what he calls equality covenants, where a hash of the requested transactions fields are put onto the stack for evaluation. Um, so if you're curious about Rusty's high-level thoughts on types of covenants, check out his post separate from the one we highlighted in the newsletter titled Covenants in Bitcoin, a Useful Review Taxonomy. I think that's a good way to categorize, at least at some level, the different types of covenant proposals. His uh, post that we highlighted in the newsletter this week walks through uh, an initial example of introspecting a single taproot script path. And he goes through a few different steps. In step one, he uses either a new opcode opcat, which we'll get to potentially um, in a minute, or op multi sha 256 to get a tap leaf hash of the script. And in step two of his example, he then uses a new opcode op key add tweak to tweak the pub key by that tap belief hash that was calculated in step one. In step three, he prepends uh, the segwit v1 bytes for taproot, which are op 132, and then compares all of that with the script pub key of the transaction in question using, again, either opcat or op multi sha 256 And that was just a simple example of a simple, single uh, taproot script path. He has different uh, examples of script in his blog post that walks through that. Um, and in order to do more than one tap leaf condition, he notes that another opcode, either op less or op conditional swap, are needed. And in order to enable even more useful features, there would be need changes needed to the semantics of the op success type op codes. Um, and Merch, I know you have some things prepared as well. Um, that was my takeaway from reading through the blog post. You want to jump in? 
Sorry, I think that got mixed up. I have some stuff prepared for the release candidate later. But honestly, I have not been closely following the entire transaction introspection debate. I, I'm i waiting for people that are really excited about this potential new use cases to make up their mind what sort of proposal they are trying to champion. Because right now, the way it looks to me, there is still uh, a lot of disagreement or uh, differing preferences on what people want to do, what people need to do that. Um, so I have not spent enough time on it yet to have some firm opinions on it. Well, it, it looks like we've lost Ethan, who I was going to ping on this to see if he had an opinion given his his work on OpCat. Um but yeah, I, I think uh, take a look at those two blog posts from Rusty's blog, one that we linked to in uh, the write-up, and then the other one that I've noted as the, a useful review of taxonomy. Um, and hopefully at some point we can get Rusty on to, to talk about this and some of his other thoughts on, on Bitcoin script and covenants. I see Ethan's back. Yeah, maybe, maybe uh, I can... Um elaborate a little bit more on my position. So I think we've had a lot of discussion in the last year and um, the I have the impression that the topic has been making a lot of progress, especially since OPCTV was pushed into the, the main um, discussion for, for a bit and like other people became aware that there is there's a engineering and research questions that need to be addressed. I think, for example, that James picking it up and saying that OpCTV would um, perfectly fit the op unvault needs of his vaulting proposal and uh, rear then code writing a big summary on what exactly the differences of um, any prev out and uh, CTV and his own preferred style of combining them would be. So I, I see that people are making progress on all of this, but personally, I'm just not involved in, involved enough to to have a personal need for for any of these. So I've I've just not been reading much on it. I see Ethan's here now. I I'll shut up and let him talk. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm joining from from the train. Um, I guess the reason I'm very excited about OpCat is that Bitcoin doesn't really have a general purpose way to combine things on the stack. Um, and so when I've like attempted to build interesting scripts, this was always the, the roadblock. Um, and so OpCat is kind of following from the idea of the like Unix philosophy of a very simple, basic, um, uh, modular opcode that lets you combine things on the stack and that you can use with other opcodes to build uh, complex behavior um, where we don't dictate how you will use it. We just provide this nice, simple way to combine things on the stack. Um, Ethan, you've muted yourself, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, so I guess like uh, just like thinking through some of the things you can build with OpCat, but, like non but not an exclusive um, uh, list is... Um, you can uh, say build Merkle trees in Bitcoin script now. So for instance, 
if you have opcat, you can take two objects, concatenate them together, and then hash them, and then take two other objects, concatenate them together, and then hash them, and then concatenate the two hashes together, and then hash them. So this allows you to, for instance, do tree signatures um, or uh, tree pub keys in which you commit to a large number of pub keys uh, in a single hash and then uh, show the Merkle path uh, to that Merkle root. Um, uh, but there's just like, a, there's so many things that can be built with uh, Opcat and it's a very simple, uh, very simple change. Yeah, um, this is Armin. The other thing people are really excited to uh, use with Opcat is CTV style covenants. Uh, Interpulsor has a, a three-part blog on how to do this. I don't know if Rusty goes into this at all, um, but there is an opportunity for users to essentially put all the components of a transaction that would spend on the stack, concatenate them, and then use another hypothetical opcode called opcheck from check stick from stack to check if the well check stick from stack just checks a message against an arbitrary signature. So you would essentially check if the transaction that's spending is the one that's being provided on the stack. So you use that same signature with the normal object SIG to verify that. And then you could just do whatever introspection you want on the transaction components. Yeah, so definitely look into Andrew's blogs for more comprehensive understanding of how that works. If I'm this is a, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, and this is a, a very simple change to add. Um, our reference implementation is using the... Uh, is, is, is based on the elements version of op, opcat. Um, so basically you can just take a op success X and redefine it to opcat um, and soft fork it in. And just to, to clarify my understanding and, and maybe for some of the listeners, uh, over 10 years ago, what, what was it back in 2010, there was a few bugs found in some of the opcodes and Satoshi made a change that disabled 15 of them, which actually we get to in the stack exchange, I think, as well. Um, and I think one of those opcodes was opcat in Bitcoin script. But the proposal that you guys have written up uh, doesn't add opcat back to Bitcoin script, but instead introduces opcat as a new tap script opcode. Do I have that right? Uh, yes, that's, that's, that's correct. Um, we're uh, adding it back as a... Um, and also to clarify, um, we had a similar situation uh, a few weeks ago uh, in newsletter 272 we had on Stephen Roofs, who was outlining his BIP to specify the optx hash code. And he made it clear that that was just specifying how the opcode could work and that he wasn't proposing any sort of soft fork activation, just specifying his ideas on how optx hash might work. I think that's similar to what you're proposing here. You're just, the BIP is saying how, how this, this could work and you're not actually proposing something uh, as part of a uh, soft fork act activation. Is that right? Uh, no, not quite. I think Steven also is proposing soft fork, even if the BIP is not um, specifying that, I think the BIP is still in draft. So I think, actually, if I understand Steven's proposal, it's a soft fork. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's correct. Merch, do you have any clarifying questions or comments? Uh, no, I think I've said everything. I, I afford myself not to have an opinion on introspection at this time. Uh, Ethan, I heard you mention the, the elements uh, code base. Is, there's there's a uh, implementation of opcat on elements and, and liquid currently that, that's running. Is that correct? 
yes, that's that's correct. Um, Elements added Opcat a while ago, um, and uh, it's actually fairly similar with just a few small changes to what Satoshi originally had for Opcat. Um, and so uh, since that's been fairly uh, like well-tested, um, we're uh, using, uh, we're, we're basing our implementation on uh, the elements uh, implementation of Opcat. Yeah, um, actually the, the plan to implement this is uh, just to take the elements pull request that re-enables Opcat uh, change it so that it uh, uses one of the op success op codes uh, restricted to tap script. And um, the plan is to implement it into AJ's Bitcoin Inquisition stick now. I do have the impression that those two are training too hard. Uh, I'm not getting their sound at this time. Yeah, I think we, we made we made it through most of the, the explanation without um, them being in a tunnel somewhere. Um, I think we could probably wrap up. Um, Ethan and Armin, thanks for joining. You're welcome to stay on if you need some train entertainment. Um, otherwise, I think we'll, we'll move on with the, the newsletter. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks, thanks for jumping on in such a distressed uh, situation. It's great to get your feedback. Next section from the newsletter was selected Q&A from the Bitcoin Stack Exchange. We have six that we highlighted this month. The first one, I'll tee up to Merch. Merch, how does the branch and bound coin selection algorithm work? Well, glad that you asked. Um, so I recently realized that this question had never been asked on Stack Exchange, and some people that are familiar with the topic will realize that I'm talking about my own work from 2016. So uh, this is the subject or one of the results from my master thesis that I wrote seven years ago. So anyway, I just... Um, asked and answered that question and described how branch and bound actually works. And really what it does is it is essentially an uh, exhaustive search to find the least wasteful input set that produces a changeless transaction. So we're trying essentially the whole combination, combination space of all UTXOs in your wallet and see which one would be the least costly compared to an, a hypothetical spend in the future? And we use that to create a changeless transaction. So clearly that doesn't always have a solution. So in the case that it doesn't have a solution, we um, fall back to other coin selection mechanisms. But when it does have a solution, creating a changeless transaction is uh, a smaller transaction. It is a... Uh, therefore, cheaper transaction. It also has some privacy benefits not to send change back to yourself. It it breaks some of the core assumptions about transactions that they always have two outputs. One is change, one is a receive. So to some analytics software, it might look like you're doing a consolidation rather than a payment. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, if you're interested in coin selection, there's a few topics on Stack Exchange to that effect. And I think in a lot of wallet software, this is still an unsolved um, problem. So if you're interested in that, come talk to me. <laughs> Next question from the Stack Exchange is, why is each tra transaction broadcast twice in the network? And the person asking this is referencing uh, an early mailing list post from Satoshi uh, in which he noted, 
each transaction has to be broadcast twice. And the assumption of the person asking this, as well as Antoine, who answered it, was that at the time that Satoshi wrote that, the transaction was broadcast twice because there was once during the transaction being relayed before it was confirmed in a block, and then the transaction data was also then included during block relay when that transaction was confirmed in a block. Um, the, the confusion maybe from this person or, or maybe the reason this person is asking is that that's not the case anymore. Um, with the addition of BIP 152, which is compact block relay, means that the transaction data needs to only be broadcast once to appear, either when you're relaying transactions to that peer or when that block gets in because of the comp compact block. Um, does, it, it doesn't include uh, redundant transaction information, so you really only need to pass that once to appear. Merch, any thoughts? Oh, hand up. Yeah, I I wanted to share an anecdote by a seasoned Bitcoin protocol developer. Uh, back in the early days, um, he, when a new block came in, you would just get a small spike of data um, because uh, people would just offer you that block, you'd download that block, and then you'd push it out to all your peers again. And um, he noted that in some video calls that he was on, he could see who was running Bitcoin Core nodes because they would all start stuttering at the same moment. So now that we have compact blocks, that doesn't really happen that much anymore because we spread out all of the transaction relay to before the block. And usually, hopefully, you have seen something like 99% or more of the block content before you see the block announcement. And with the compact block announcement, you basically get a recipe how to rebuild the block from your mempool. And in the optimal case, you have all the transactions, but if not, you might be asking only for a handful of transaction um, transactions. And usually they are not that big unless they include a bunch of uh, memes. Next question from the Stack Exchange. Why are opmol and opdiv disabled in Bitcoin? And so these are two opcodes uh, for multiplying and dividing. And we alluded to this earlier in the change that Satoshi made, which disabled a bunch of opcodes within weeks of two vulnerabilities, one being the one return bug, which allowed basically anybody to spend anybody's coins. And there's also a link to the op L shift crash bug um, that both of those bugs were discovered in the weeks prior to Satoshi disabling those 15 opcodes that I mentioned earlier, which included opcat, but also included, included these um, uh, opcodes, which to my knowledge, there, there weren't necessarily any concerns about multiplying and dividing, but Merch, are you aware of any potential vulnerabilities there or was just, just Satoshi being cautious and, and disabling uh, a wide swath of things in, in the wake of two vulnerabilities. I'm not aware of any other vulnerabilities, but we also had a related question on Stack Exchange recently, which asked why Opmo was never reintroduced since then. And uh, Peter replied that there just don't doesn't seem to be a known use case of anything interesting that you could do with it. So maybe it was also just uh, Satoshi taking a good look at the opcodes that were there and being overly cautious, but also taking out opcodes that weren't that interesting in hindsight. I 
I mean, as always, we don't know what Satoshi thought, and he's been a little reticent in the last 12 years, so I don't think there's going to be more insights coming. He hasn't responded to any of my emails. Next question from the Stack Exchange. Why are hash sequence and hash prevouts computed separately? And Peter Wulla answered this question, um, and he indicated that uh, if you split up the to-be-signed transaction hash data into prevouts and sequences, those hash values can be pre-computed hash values, can be used once for the whole transaction, and can also involve a bunch of different SIG hashes as opposed um, to not pre-computing those. Um, I think the person who was asking this was thinking about a particular uh, the SIG hash all signatures, whereas there's other SIG hash types, SIG hash anyone can pay, SIG hash none, SIG hash single, um, in which you're signing for different pieces of the data. So by pre-computing those two pieces of data, um, you, you have everything you need for the rest of the transaction. Next question from the Stack Exchange. Why does Miniscript add an extra size check for hash pre-image comparisons? And Antoine answered this one as well, noting that hash pre-images are limited size in Miniscript to avoid non-standard Bitcoin transactions, so transactions that um, wouldn't be by default relayed on the peer-to-peer network and also to avoid consensus invalid cross-chain atomic swaps. So in the case that you're swapping your Bitcoin for Lightning or some such thing, um, you could end up where one side of the swap is valid and one side is not if those pre-images are too large compared to that chain's consensus requirements. And uh, he also notes that um, by limiting this, in the way that Miniscript does, the, the witness cost can be accurately calculated, which has its own, own value. Last question from the Stack Exchange is, how can the next block fee be less than the mempool purging fee rate? And the person asking this included a couple mempool.space dashboards. One showed the default mempool purging 1.51 Satoshis per V-byte transactions. And then the second screenshot indicated that the estimated next block template was going to be containing transactions that were 1.49 Satoshis per V-byte. And Gloria answered this question. Uh, she gave two cases in which this could be true and also indicated the one that she thinks is likely. And the one, the explanation that she thinks is likely was that um, when the, the mempool is full and transactions need to be evicted from the mempool in order to not exceed the max mempool size, that at the time that the eviction occurs, the mempool min fee rate is incremented by this incremental relay fee. And that doesn't evict all of the transactions that are lower than that fee rate. So there are some transactions that would still be in the mempool that did not need to be evicted in order uh, to stay within the maximum mempool size. And in this case, there was a bunch of potential, I think it was consolidation transactions that were right around that fee rate. Um, and so that would explain why it's purging, quote unquote, 1.51 Satoshis per V-byte, but that the next block is actually going to include 1.49 Satoshis per V-byte. Um, Merch. Any clarification there? 
Yeah, I just wanted to point out that when you uh, when your mempool starts purging stuff because it's running full, it will actually bump its minimum dynamic mempool fee rate to a value one sat per vbyte higher. So if you purge something at one sat per vbyte, it'll immediately jump to two sats per vbyte and will not accept any new submissions below two sats per vbyte. So even though you only kicked out the lowest, everything under two sets per vbyte still remains beyond that. You would continue to evict if you get more submissions at higher fee rates and your mempool bumps into the limit again. But um, this, is, this is not a special case or a weird case. This is more or less always the case when you bump that everything else that was also below that fee rate remains. We don't kick unnecessarily more than we need. We just kick until we're down below the limit again. Now, how would you even get a fee rate of 1.5? Well, the minimum fee rate, the dynamic minimum, the, sorry, the dynamic minimum mempool fee rate, that's a mouthful, um, decays over time again. So um, it would just be simply stupid if you could resubmit the same thing right after you kicked it out. So once the limit has been popped up a bit, over time it'll slowly decay down to no limit at all, but only as it is not full and needs to evict new stuff again. So um, you would only ever get to the 1.5 by um, decaying back down. But this is, of course, not the case by, on the mempool side. Mempool actually has a way bigger mempool and keeps a lot more transactions around and doesn't expire them after two weeks either. So they just calculate the dynamic minimum mempool fee rate that you might see on your own node if you're running it. Or maybe they have a second one with the default and read it off of there. But I think the first is more likely. Merch, during that uh, bumping of the minimum mempool fee rate by one whole Satoshi per vbyte, doesn't that mean that if, if I'm a miner, I'm potentially now keeping transactions that are less profitable from a fee rate perspective than, than I could be because I'm now excluding, uh, I guess, in, in the example of going from one Satoshi per vbyte to two, I'm now not including 1.9, but I am including what was there before in this example, the 1.49 or whatever. Is there a mismatch in incentives there? Uh, that is correct. Basically, what we're doing is we're saving bandwidth. We're um, limiting what we're accepting at this moment because it is very unlikely to be interesting to include it in blocks for a long time. When your mempool data structure hits 300 megabytes, and this is not uh, serialization size, this is just uh, memory on your computer, um, you have something like 90 to 120 blocks or so worth of transactions bidding on being in the next block. So if you're bumping up by uh, one sat per vbyte, you're probably just not allowing a few things in the low range territory to be submitted to your mempool, but you have ample other transactions waiting to be included. Um, probably some... 60 or so blocks worth of transactions that are bidding a higher fee rate. 
Well, in this case specifically, we we had a ton of transactions waiting between one and two, but still, you're you're gonna get the highest fee rate transactions and gonna continue to accept them. Um, but there would potentially be a mismatch like that, where you keep some lower fee rate transactions but do not accept slightly higher. So I, as a just noble node runner, am protected from a bandwidth perspective with this. But uh, if I am a miner, I, I might not care about the bandwidth protection and might care more about the fees. And maybe I'm incentivized then to run a modified version of Bitcoin Core in order to get those fees. I think you would uh, maybe modify the configuration, yes. Um, as a miner... I would probably have a multiple nodes that are connected to the network in order to learn about new transactions, especially juicy transactions, as quickly as possible. So even if something is broadcast right before I find my next block, I hopefully have already included it in my block template. Also, if my connection to the network has an issue, like the node goes down or someone is dosing it or whatever not, I do not stop learning about new transactions for my block templates. So clearly as a miner, I would like to have multiple border nodes that then connect to my template creating node. And maybe my template creating node would run with a bigger mempool and without an expiry in the first place, and probably also mempool full RBF. So I ensure that I always learn about the highest fee rate transactions and keep other uh, queuing items around as long as possible in order to build the best block templates. But then I might also be running multiple border nodes with different configurations. So maybe most of them are default configuration, but maybe there is a couple that have a bigger mempool in order to relay everything to my um, template creating node. Or maybe I'll have some that are mempool full RBF and some that are not, so that I keep both the original transactions and the replacements and make sure that I see everything. But yeah, I I sometimes wonder how much of this miners do because a lot of them seem to be mostly focused on the logistics game, like saving money on the energy price, the, the cooling, the setup, the maintenance staff and so forth um yeah maybe i i don't know how much uh, they also work on on optimizing their interactions with the network in our earlier discussion of the replacement cycling attack there was also one of the mitigations which involved miners doing something a bit different with um transaction that that they've seen as well. So maybe even more incentive for them to start fiddling with that, which could have bad outcomes as well. The, um, we, we covered the explanation that Gloria gave that she thinks is the explanation for this mismatch uh, in the charts on mempool that space for this example. But she also mentioned another explanation um, that could result in something like this, which is the asymmetry between ancestor scoring, which is used for including transactions in a block, um, and descendant scoring, which is used for eviction from the mempool as another possible explanation to why this mismatch could occur. 
And then she also links to our Optech topic on cluster mempool and uh, the an issue on the repository explaining uh, cluster mempool as well as this asymmetry between ancestor and uh, descendant scoring. I don't know if you have any comments on that, Merch. I know we talked about that a bit with the mempool and policy series special that we did on the newsletter. Yeah, um, cluster mempool, to sum it up, would fix this um, asymmetry in that once we track transactions in the form of clusters instead of ancestor sets, we would have asymmetric eviction and um, block building. So the things that we mine last would also be the first things to be evicted. And that is actually one of the really exciting things about the cluster mempool proposal. That wraps up the Stack Exchange section. Uh, we don't have any notable code and documentation changes this week, but we do have three releases that we highlighted in the newsletter. Um, Merch, as our resident Bitcoin Core developer, although we also have Fabian on today, um, I thought maybe it would make sense for you to, to highlight what you think is important about these um, maintenance releases as well as the 26.0 release candidate. Yeah, while it is release season, we've seen 24.2 and 25.1 uh, drop this week, and 26.0 is in the making. Um, the point releases, as we've stated here a few times already, are mostly about bug fixes. I think the most notable changes in 24.2 um, are that we have a fix for avoiding to serve stale fee estimates. So this was an issue, if I remember correctly, that comes up when you bring back online a node that was offline just for a couple of hours, less than the time window to to lose all data on fee estimates. Um, the the window is, I think, somewhere around three hours for the the um, estimate to be complete. And then it would come back online after a couple of hours of being offline and happily serve you the estimate that is based on two hour old mempool data. Uh, so there's a fix for that. This has also been backported to 25.1. And in 25.1, there's also a fix for uh, parallel compact block downloads. So this addresses an issue where if you got an announcement of a new block and you were missing a couple transactions, and usually you first try to get that from the node that has um, announced a block to you first, but if this node then is really slow to, um, to offer you up the actual transaction data of the missing transactions, you might be stuck on trying to validate that block and uh, um, I had a cursory look on that. From what I understand, the solution is to ask for the missing transactions for block templates from more than one node and potentially ask some high bandwidth nodes to also provide copies of those transactions, especially if that is just slow to come in from the first announcer. Um, so I think that is mostly what I would wrap up on the two point releases. Fabian, if you have more, please uh, feel free to jump in. Otherwise, I'll um, be looking a little bit at what is coming in the 26.0 release. 
And as usual, this is a release candidate, so it's not final yet. We might find a bug or two yet. The release notes are not completed yet. If people are relying on the Bitcoin Core software and are interested in running that in production soon to um, in their backend or whatever, we always encourage to read the entire release notes and uh, to maybe start putting it in their test setup to, to see if there's any issues. There is a bunch of new RPCs, RPC changes, new features, a bunch of changes in the wallet, and let's take it from the top. So we've talked a ton already earlier about Assume UTXO. Um, as Fabian earlier said, the code for, for loading the snapshot is in, and there will not be a snapshot shipped in the release because we, um, well, the there is maybe a little more test coverage to be built out there and a little more maturity to to arrive with the Assume UTXO code. So it's only being shipped for testnet at this time. Uh, there's also BIP324 support being shipped. So if you have been hankering to encrypt all the connections between your Bitcoin node and its peers, you can now turn on support for v2 transaction relay. Um, this is off by default, but if you turn it on, uh, nodes that both have turned it on, sorry, two peers that both support the new v2 relay, will figure that out during the handshake and then start using v2 um, P2P messages in order to communicate with each other and will encrypt their traffic. Um, so if you do not rely on your node doing all the right things in your backend and just run it as a hobbyist without um, big infrastructure hanging from it or are more on the adventurous side, I would encourage you to uh, turn that on just like I will when the release is out and uh, tell us if anything interesting happens that shouldn't be happening, please. Let's get to the new RPCs. Uh, there is four new RPCs. One is get prioritized transaction. Uh, so if you are a miner, you might have uh, manually changed the order in which you want to mine transactions in the next block by prioritizing a transaction. For example, because you have personal interest in that being included or somebody bribed you out of band to get a confirmation more quickly. Uh, now there is an RPC to see um, which items have been changed from their regular fee-based priority. Um, again, anybody catching me to make a mistake, I've only been staring at this for a few minutes, so I might misremember something. And if you care about this sort of stuff, please read the actual release notes. Also, the release notes are incomplete still at this time because it's release candidate one. Um, second item is a submit package RPC. I think we've covered that one a little bit previously. Submit package is used to test whether multiple transactions together would be able to enter the mempool rather than um, them being evaluated separately. So usually all transactions would be processed 
individually and each transaction for example has to um, supersede the dynamic minimum mempool fee rate but if you for example have a low fee rate parent transaction and a high fee rate child you will now be able to submit that to your own node via rpc and get your node to evaluate those two transactions mm -hmm. together and if the child bumps the parent high enough that both of them would be viable in your mempool they will be accepted into your mempool so this is new this is obviously part of the package relay effort and if you for example run lightning infrastructure this might be an interesting mm -hmm. rpc for you to look at mm -hmm. jesus getting lots of messages here um there is further an import mempool rpc we've had a way to export the current mempool for a while uh, if you for example run multiple nodes because you're a miner and you want to synchronize what mempools they have you could use the export mempool and the import mempool rpcs to transfer from one node to your other node uh, dangerous here is if you just randomly import mempool stuff from other nodes uh, I think not all the checks are run on it because it assumes that the stuff is already validated. So don't randomly download mempools from other people and then trust them uh, to accurately portray mm -hmm. unconfirmed transactions or um, they could also uh, fud fiddle with your prioritizations. So it imports, for example, the prioritize transaction settings on transactions. So this is more a thing you might want to do if you run multiple nodes and want to import mempools from one to the other, but maybe be cautious if you're downloading mempools from other people. Uh, there is also an get adderman info RPC. Sorry, this is turning a little bit into a soliloquy. Um, let me know if you want to jump in or have comments on anything. Uh, so with get adderman info, we get a overview of what's in the new and in the tried table of the nodes address manager. And it just gives you a count of the addresses in new and tried and as well as a sum of all the networks. Um, there is further a P2P change that makes sure that if you are connected to multiple networks, you always try to mm -hmm. keep one connection over open on every and network, which previously not necessarily was true. So for example, if you were connected to ClearNet and Tor, uh, but you had way fewer items in your table uh, for Tor, you might lose connection to the Tor network. We will now protect at least the last connection to each network. So you're always connected to each of the networks that your node uses. Uh, let's get to, oh, one, before I do wallet, let me say something about testnet. There's a huge change on how uh, Bitcoin Core will interact with the testnet. So far, testnet was the Wild West and you would allow all transactions. We will now make testnet behave a lot more or your node interacting with testnet a lot more like mainnet in the sense that your node will not accept non-standard transactions on testnet by default. If you want the old behavior, there is a way to turn that back on. But generally, we will not accept to our mempool or propagate non-standard transactions on testnet anymore. And I think the motivation here is mainly that we want to remove the difference in 
uh, UX. So some people might have been testing their stuff on testnet and everything works great. And then when they move to deploy their software on mainnet, they realize that it actually does not work because they were using non-standard transactions. And this uh, changed, sorry, the, the change to how we behave on testnet will now um, remove that source of, mm -hmm. of confusion. All right, um, wallet changes. A bunch of RPCs now return whether a transaction has been abandoned as an abandoned field. Hardened, hardened derivation is now indicated via an H on some of the descriptor and PSBT RPCs. Previously, that was an apostrophe. And as anyone that has been trying to use the Bitcoin Core node from the command line has noticed, uh, getting the quotation marks for all of your calls right is a hassle. So having an apostrophe in the PSBT and descriptor descriptions sometimes made it harder to correctly uh, phrase your your command line commands. And now being able to use H instead makes that easier. Um, a bunch of informational RPCs that get information uh, include now a last processed block and that will make it easier for you to learn about whether a response has been outdated by now or not because um, you know what uh, the latest state of the node was when you got that um, response from the RPC. In the wallet process PSBT and descriptive process PSBT calls, we now return the final transaction if it is final already. So if you are processing a partially signed Bitcoin transaction and you're adding a signature and this finalizes the transaction, you don't have to call uh, separately to get back the final hex. You immediately get that delivered if the transaction is now complete and can directly put that into send, trans send draw transaction, for example. Uh, also something that is not in the release notes yet because I haven't written them yet. If you're spending unconfirmed inputs and the parent transaction has a lower fee rate than the target fee rate of the transaction you're creating, you will automatically bump the parent transaction to the same fee rate now, which means that you're not creating an un uh, a unexpected child pays for parent situation and undershoot the target fee rate that you were aiming for. Uh, I call this ancestor aware funding or automatic CPFP. And if you want to read more about that, uh, I will write release notes soon. <laughs> okay, this is my 26.0 preview. If you're interested in any of those features, please do test the new release candidate. If you're interested in reading more about it, please look at the release notes. And if you want to get into Bitcoin core development, there's uh, we should talk about that some other time. <laughs> I think the one new RPC that wasn't mentioned yet is the get chain states RPC. Um, just want to add that. Um, so we talked a bunch about load TX outset. Um, and uh, if you actually succeed in loading the um, UTXO set, then there's going to be temporarily um, two, state, uh, two chain states. So one is going to be at the tip and the other one is going to um, do IBD in the background. Um, and so to monitor the process, uh, you can call get chain states 
um, to see what the progress is. I just grabbed through that and see that it is mentioned in the load TX outset RPC, um, but that might need to be its own bullet point. Merch, awesome. I had no idea you were going to have such thorough notes there. This is great. We can point people to this uh, as a definitive uh, place to look for 26.0 ads. So thank you. Thanks. Glad that it was well received. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. Thanks to our special guests, Bastian, Fabian, Ethan, Armin, and always to my co-host, Merch. See you next week. See you.